Okay. Well, this will be our last talk of the day. And I think my voice is starting to go, so. Um, so, let's see. The, I promised our last talk would be on failure. And this is, this is a project I've been working on for a long time. Um, collecting failure saints has actually been a thing for me. And I suspect it will become my next book. But, uh, which I suspect is going to be called Fail Life Lessons from Losers, Has-Beens, Nobodies, and Other Great Saints. <laughs> but I want to start it off with a reflection on a non-loser, um, so that we have something, someone to contrast them with, um, namely Achilles. My own background, as I've said, is in ancient history, and so Achilles is a great hero of mine, and the Iliad is an important, well, the important book other than the Bible, as far as I'm concerned. And in one of the greatest scenes in all of ancient literature, the enraged warrior, Achilles, who's unbeaten and, and unbeatable, uh, stands outside his tent on the beach of Troy while three ambassadors beg him to rejoin the battle. And Achilles who is unmoved by their tears and their appeals, he says, I hate that man. I hate him like I hate death because he tore my honor from my hands. And this is, this is a, a crucial moment in the whole history of Western civilization that Achilles makes it clear that his honor is something external to himself. Um, and... Uh, it's shocking and it's beautiful and it's also heart-wrenching, but it's also kind of confusing because we have to ask ourselves, how is it possible for someone to take your honor out of your hands, right? Well, for the ancient Greeks, um, on, they, well, they measured their honor in two respects, in, in how much stuff you had and in what people said about you. They call them Time and Kleos. And it survives to a certain extent in our own prayers. All, they call it, it, we translate it in English, honor and glory. Honor is how much stuff you have. Glory is what people say about you. So when we say all honor and glory be to you, almighty God, we're saying all of our stuff, all of our praise belongs to you. Um, the thing is, though, like I said, it's sort of confusing because we think of honor as something interior, as something that is just sort of between us and God. Um, but see, when, when, when Achilles, when, sorry, I lost my place. When, um, so when Achilles has his slaves stolen by Agamemnon, it hurts him on a level we can't really comprehend. I read a book that talked about, uh, called Achilles in Vietnam. And he, he said, like, imagine a general who has his army on display and he walks past the soldier and he says, is that a purple heart? Uh, I never got one of those. Here, I'll take that. Right? It's, it's horrifying in its callousness. But the thing is, like, for the Greeks, honor was a zero-sum game. The more of it you have, the less I have. The more, if you insult me in public, I have to insult you with a good or better insult, or else we're never going to be even again. 
And, and I think, I've mentioned this story because I think Achilles is beginning to make a comeback. Um, I think as a culture, we've begun once more to measure our honor in material things, in external things. And, and particularly our kids are feeling the stress of it. I was going through this passage actually with some students and one of them, I said, you know, this is probably really hard for you to understand. He said, no, it's not. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, I can measure my reputation. I've got so many followers on Twitter. He has these many followers. I can steal his followers. I can get my followers to dislike his posts. I get so many likes on my posts, um, so on and so forth. And then another kid brought in a rap song by Kendrick Lamar, which I do not recommend that you listen to. But it, it, it's, the, the title of the song is, um, what is it called? Money and Rep. Money and Reputation. He's a rapper. And so he comes from the inner city and from, I think, Compton, where he was in a gang. And he says, it was all about money and rep, money and reputation. He's like, but I, I fought my way out of that. He says, I, I'm beyond that now. I hang out with politicians and movie stars and models. He's like, and now he says, it's all about money and rep, money and rep. So that's a brilliant sort of circularity to it. But my purpose here tonight, today, is not really, it's not so much to whine about how horrible the world has become, but rather to propose some solutions, okay? To offer antidotes. And I offer them in the form of stories. These are saints. And as I move from one saint to the next, I want you to keep Homer's invincible hero Achilles in the back of your mind in his honor. Um, so I want to start with the biggest loser of them all, the sort of number one loser in the church's calendar, and that's John the Baptist. Um, he ate bugs. Yeah, really, I think I could stop there. Um, he wore uncomfortable, unattractive homemade clothes. He died young. He was, by his own admission, unworthy to unfasten the sandals of the guy who came after him. And when his own followers decide to abandon him to follow Jesus, he actually encourages them, saying what I think is one of the saddest expressions in the New Testament. He says, well, I must decrease so he can increase. Really, what a sad thing to say. And can you imagine any politician, movie star, superhero, CEO, any of them saying, even a televangelist saying, well, I've got to fail so he can succeed. Right. Furthermore, uh, well, like, John, like most of the prophets, John was killed, was murdered by the very people he was trying to help. And, and he was preparing them for a man that they would eventually reject, humiliate, and execute. And yet, Jesus said of this failure, this colossal failure, that he was the greatest man born of woman. He was one of the few saints in the Roman calendar who has two feast days devoted exclusively to him. One is his birth and the other, well, ironically, his beheading. Uh, second on my list is Saints Simon and Jude. Uh, here are two men who own nothing, and, and, about, and in spite of their fame, we know almost nothing about them, scholars do. St. Jude was confused with Judas, 
So often, he eventually became the patron of lost causes. What's more, the gospel writers themselves can't seem to keep his name straight. John calls him Judas, but not the Iscariot. Uh, Luke calls him Jude, the brother of James. Matthew calls him Thaddeus. No one quite knows where he gets that from. Nothing is said about him in any of the Gospels except that he asked one question. Not a very good one. Anybody know it? John 14, 22. Jude says, what's this? That's it. That there, there's a new te- that's, that's his contribution to the New Testament. There is a letter that bears his name, but most scholars agree that someone else wrote it for him. Um, and we know even less about Simon, if you can imagine. He, mostly he goes by not Peter. Luke calls him Simon the Zealot. Matthew and Mark call him Simon the Canaanite. Um, and that's really it for Simon and Jude. They even have to share a feast day. And yet, they were chosen by God himself, hand, literally hand-picked to start his church. These are the founders of our faith. Uh, my, one of my own personal favorite, St. Edward the Confessor. And here we have a, a, a refreshing change of pace. Oh, and by the way, I've made holy cards for a lot of these guys downstairs. You can help yourself when we're done. Um, Edward the Confessor was a king, so by the standards of the time, obscenely rich, singularly influential. However, pretty widely acknowledged as the worst politician in the history of England. Uh, King Edward, son of Ethelred the Unready, uh, an inauspicious beginning if ever there was one, uh, weak, impotent, and famously ugly. Uh, In worldly terms, a complete disappointment. During the course of his reign, King Edward the Confessor, get this, he lost all the money in England. All of it. In fact, he allowed himself to be used as a puppet by, of all people, his mother-in-law. Then, and then when she was done with him, she sold the country to a pack of French conmen who took over. And then, despite his marriage to a, an intelligent and famously beautiful woman, he never managed to produce an heir, which is like the one thing even an incompetent monarch can usually pull off. Um, now, his contemporaries claim this was his choice because he secretly wanted to be a monk, and who doesn't? But <laughs> most, uh, most contemporary scholars think that his wife just couldn't force herself to help him in this area. In fact, King Edward the Confessor left to history a reputation for weakness, indecision, and utter financial incompetence. And yet, interestingly, he remains England's most popular saint. His was the only tomb in England that Cromwell wouldn't destroy. Um, He built the world's greatest monastery at Westminster. And even to this day, in England, where there are more practicing Catholics now than there are Anglicans, over a million pilgrims go to his tomb every year. Thank you, yes. Impressive. Well, if you think that's great, well, how about Rose Philippine Duchenne? Yeah, sorry, she's a loser. Yeah, no, no, I said that now. Uh, 
I'm not now. I'm not going to. I'm okay. Yeah, I, I said this years ago, and, and there were uh, Sacred Heart nuns in the audience, <laughs> and I really got it afterwards. So, these are not my words. All right, I'm just going to read you the first paragraph of her biography. So if you have anyone to blame for this, blame Marion T. Horvat, her official biographer. All right, um, the first order she entered closed. She did not feel realized in the second institution until she came to America to convert the Indians. Then, instead of carrying out this long-desired mission, she was ordered to teach girls and found convents. The work was more difficult because, get this, she never learned to speak English. Yeah, can you imagine? Like, I think I'm a failure in the classroom, but at least I speak the language. <laughs> she founded one convent that failed, uh, then another that floundered, that foundered, rather, uh, not floundered. Uh, the girls there were, in her words, ungrateful and worldly, and the sisters chafed under her governance. They made her sleep under the stairs. When she finally was permitted to go work in an Indian mission, she was already 72 years old, too old to work or to learn the native language. But after one year, only one year, she was denied even that great consolation. She was ordered to leave the Indian mission and return to Florissant. Yeah, only people from St. Louis understand the gravity of that. <laughs> Where she died, having converted exactly one Indian who apostatized three months later. She, and yet, St. Philippine was utterly faithful to her call as a missionary. She was called by God to be a missionary. She was just called by God to fail at being a missionary. And a century after her death, when the Jesuits finally showed up to do the job right, uh, the Potawatomi Indians remembered her. They said, oh, yeah. No, that's what she was trying to tell us. Yes, we remember her. She was the, we call her the woman who prayed. Then, of course, they all uh, converted. Uh, I'm going to just shuffle through a few more here. St. James the Dismembered. Yeah, the name says it all. I'll just move on to St. Drogo, patron of ugly people. Uh, let's see what he's saying. He is the patron saint of uh, intestinal blockages, kidney stones, uh, mental illness, orphans, and ugly people. <laughs> Talk about not being able to catch a break, the poor guy. He was so ugly, the priest wouldn't let him into mass because he scared the kids. So he dug a hole in the wall of the church and built a shack next to it, and he'd watch his sheep while watching mass through the hole in the wall. Um, he's also the patron saint of coffee, interestingly, because at the end of every day, he would reward himself by allowing himself to drink a bowl of warm water. Um, saints like these would have, well, you know what? No, I'm going to go with, look, there's Olaf the Fat. There's Saint Rosalia, patroness of uh, 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 projectile vomiting and nosebleeds. Saint Mark G. Tianxiang who was a, an opium addict. His parish priest told him that he couldn't go to heaven if he was going to be addicted to opium, uh, which is, of course is not, we now know, opium addiction is not a mortal sin. Um, getting addicted might be, but that's another story. 
The point is, his parish priest said, you can't, you can't receive communion. So he would just sit on the porch of the church and look in because he knew he couldn't give it up. Finally, he went to his parish priest. He said, look, I've got to go to heaven. I really want to be with Jesus. He said, well, you know, I guess if he got martyred. So he did. But he's always shown in heaven with his opium pipe. <laughs> um, there's uh, Blessed Justus Takayama Ukon, the samurai, who ran around Japan killing anyone who wouldn't convert, uh, until the Jesuits caught up with him and said, no, I, stop it. It's not the way we do business. And he famously hung up his sword, and he said, from now on, I fight not with the katana, but with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Which turned out to be less effective than the katana, though, because... <laughs> They killed him. Uh, Saint Thaddeus McCarthy, the bishop, well, actually, he was a homeless person uh, who died outside of Cork, no, York, no, Cork, outside of Cork in Ireland. Um, when, they, when they went to bury him in a pauper's grave, the guy who was throwing him in the hole found a ring on him, a bishop's ring. It turns out he was their bishop. It's just the one that was already the bishop didn't want to step down, so... He spent his whole life walking back and forth from Rome to Cork, trying to get into his own diocese. Uh, saint Eulalia, uh, the world's toughest saint, uh, imprisoned, whipped, scourged, roasted, stoned, branded, boiled in oil, locked in a box of fleas, rolled down a hill in a barrel of knives, crucified. Finally, they just beheaded her, and that did the trick. For all this, she became the patron saint of Barcelona, but when she failed to turn back the plague of 1218, they found a new patron saint. So, yeah, I know, poor thing. After all that, you'd think she, they'd stick with it. Um, let's see. Um, oh, Moses the Black, one of my favorites. He was a, also known as Moses the Strong or Moses the Ethiopian. Is one of the very first monks, along with Antony the Great. His, uh, his is a great story. He was um, a, a robber, a, a highwayman on the highway between Cairo and Skeet, I think, and or Cairo and Carthage, something like that. Anyway, the thing is, he he lived in the desert, and he figured the sun was the most powerful thing he could imagine. So he worshipped the sun, and. Um, one day he was out robbing people and he decided he was hungry, so he swam across a creek and stole a sheep from a shepherd. But the shepherd's dog barked at him, so he got angry and killed the dog. And while he was at it, he killed all the rest of the sheep. And then the shepherd turned up, so he killed the shepherd. And this did it for the locals. They had had it with Moses. So, well, wasn't known as Moses back then. But they, so he chased him out into the desert. And he, ran, he made it as far as the monastery of Skeet. And he banged on the front door, and the porter entered. He said, hello, he killed the porter, ran inside. And then the crowd caught up, and they said, and the abbot answered the front door. And they said, we're looking for this big fellow, very, very strong, dark, complected. He goes, oh, yes, we have seen him. He was just here. If you keep looking, we're sure you'll find him. So they ran on. And Moses came out of hiding, and he said to the abbot, um, you must really be scared of me. And the abbot said, oh no, you can kill all of us, we don't care. And he said, well, whoever you worship must be really tough. Who's that? He goes, Jesus. He goes, I'm in. So he became a monk, but 
he, for, for the first couple of years, he didn't kind of figure it, up cause, figure it out because he kept beating people up. Um, he really liked to beat people up was the thing. And at, at one point, uh, th four of his buddies came to the monastery to rob it. And he beat them all up, tied them up, dragged them up to the abbot's office. And he says, okay, boss, I realize we're not supposed to kill them. Got it. We can beat them up, though, right? And the, the abbot says, no, let them go. He says, really? Anyway, so he let his four buddies go. But they were so impressed that anyone could give this guy orders that they all became monks. Um, but there are two further stories they tell about Moses that are, so, that are really wonderful. One is that... Um, one of the monks did something bad, who knows what, and the others decided they had to vote him out. And uh, to do this, you have to have all the monks together in chapter. So all the monks gathered together to have the vote, and Moses was late. Yay. And uh, when he finally did show up, he was wearing a backpack full of sand, and he cut a hole in the bottom of it so that wherever he turned, sand would go flying out of his backpack. And they were like, Moses, yes, more sand. Sand's going flying everywhere. And they're saying, stop it. Why are you doing this? He goes, oh, this? He says, well, I've come to judge my brother. They're like, yeah. He's like, well, my sins are flying out behind me like sand in this backpack. But I, that's okay. I'll judge him. So they elected him abbot. Uh, and then the last story that I'll tell you about Moses is that uh, when the Vandals invaded North Africa, they made it as far as Skeet, as his monastery. Um, and it was clear that they were going to be overrun. So he sent the monks out the back. And he said, I'll hold them off while you guys get out. And one of the novices reached and grabbed him a sword as he was running. The last one out said, here, take this. And he said, no, 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 I can't. He goes, oh, no, no, you can now. Like, you can kill as many of these guys as you want. And he said, oh, I know I could. He's like, but I would enjoy it. <laughs> so instead he held the door shut with his bare hands. Um, pope Virgilius, the, uh, there's no Pope Virgilius II because Virgilius was not a saint. Uh, but he is one of my favorite characters in the vast pantheon of corrupt popes. Um, he had a very short reign during the 6th century. I, I, I keep going back and forth whether I should make a holy card of this guy because I feel like he needs prayers at least, but his story is exceedingly complex. But the long and short of it is that he was the lover of the Empress Theodora, who was a monophysite heretic uh, who had his predecessor poisoned. <laughs> and she had Virgilius elected in his place. She surrounded the conclave and starved the cardinals until they elected her boyfriend, Pope. Uh, she also apparently gave him 700 pounds of gold with the understanding that he makes some changes to a few of the minor doctrines of the church. So Pope Virgilius, uh, in fact, she, she, well, she wanted, uh, she wanted monophysite, the, well, uh, I'll just finish this work. Pope Virgilius, so Pope Virgilius goes on retreat for a few weeks comes back to Rome to make his big announcement. At this point, he sits in the throne of Peter, gathers all the bishops around him, and he says, from now on, monophysitism is officially condemned. And then he excommunicates the empress, which he had to know was a bad idea. Um, the empress had had the previous pope murdered, after all, and she'd gotten him elected in the first place. 
So it was no small thing for her to be rid of him. But at three years of torturing him, and he didn't change his mind, on his deathbed, the broken old Pope, Bishop of Rome, managed to whisper to his executioners, do with me whatever you wish. This is just punishment for what I've done. Go ahead, keep me in captivity, but the blessed apostle Peter will never be your captive. I love Virgilius because he had every reason to change Catholic doctrine. But when push came to shove, he just couldn't bring himself to do it, could he? Well, um, saints like these, or well, people like Christians like these, would have baffled Achilles. Why we would ever admire people like this would, would just not make sense to him. Simon and Jude died without Timae or Cleos, without honor or glory. Edward squandered his political influence. John the Baptist got his head cut off. Rose Philippine Duchenne, she died penniless and disappointed. Uh, no honor or glory here, right? Not by ancient Greek standards. In fact, well, these people come up pretty short by our standards. Uh, and you have to wonder at the church's logic when it holds people like this up as martyrs or as role models. And this is why Nietzsche made fun of Christianity. He ridiculed us as, as, it, as a religion for weak people. We come from a long line of failures. Sometimes we seem to take pride in that even. Mother Teresa, you'll remember, when she was asked, how can you, how can you expect to succeed in India where the poor, poverty is so overwhelming? And she said, God doesn't expect us to be successful. He expects us to be faithful. And frankly, this quotation has come to mean a lot to me, especially in my work as a coach, because I coach a rugby team which hasn't had a winning season in 20 years. In fact, we, we only broke even once. We were, ten, we were four and four, and that year my players tore down the goalposts <laughs> because it marked the end of a four-year losing streak. Uh, now, some might argue that a losing streak of 20 years might have had something to do with my coaching, but I prefer to look at it in biblical terms. Um, because you see, God has a special affection for losers. If you look at all the losers, for example, in the long, baffling history of our salvation, starting with the Israelites themselves, uh, whose finest kings seem to have a thing for other men's wives, and continuing right up through to the age of the apostles, whose first unanimous act was to run away, uh, to our own age and folks like Philippine Duchenne. Uh, so when it comes to losing, well, I, I tell my players that it's a sign of God's special affection for them. Uh, because every failure reminds us that our beauty and our integrity in fact, our value do not lie in our accomplishments, but simply in our existence as sons of God. Now, that said, it's important to make one thing clear. Failure is bad. All right? Like all forms of suffering, it is a consequence of original sin. And it's natural, in fact, it's wise to avoid failure whenever possible. But like suffering, I think failure can be transfigured and enriched and elevated in the light of the cross, which was, if you think about it, the fusion of humanity's greatest failure with its greatest victory. Uh, 
So just as it was Christ's vocation to die on the cross, so we might be called by God to fail from time to time. In fact, I think it's fair to say that we will all inevitably be called to fail on some level. But the good news with the capital G and a capital N is that if we can unite that failure with Christ's own suffering, well, then it transforms into this tremendous good, not just an opportunity to grow, but a participation in the redemptive sufferings of Christ. We save the world by our failures. Um, secondly, I'd like to distinguish between failing and being a failure. A parallel, I think, can be drawn between being a sinner and sinning, right? That when we say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, we don't mean by that to define ourselves by our sins. Uh, we are sinners, but our identity is in Christ. If you'll remember, Martin Luther used the analogy of a dunghill, shiza, I think was the word you used in particular, a dunghill covered by snow to illustrate the theology of humanity's utter depravity. He said, we're all basically manure, but Jesus hides this from God beneath the snow of his grace, which is totally wrong, absolutely dead wrong, deadly wrong, because it does not acknowledge the fundamental goodness of God's creation. Our identity, in other words, is, not, is in our goodness, not in our sinfulness. And frankly, there's nothing wrong with poop to begin with. I've, well, I think I've told you this all. No, heck, I'm telling you again. Uh, I had a bit of a revelation a couple of Christmases ago. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of kids, for the record. I don't like them. They, they're, especially little kids, are not great conversationalists. No offense back there. I, you keep doing what you're doing. But, but I personally, not a fan. Their hygiene is terrible. Vocabulary, profoundly limited. Um, selfish. If you think about it, if that kid were seven feet tall, she could tear you to pieces for an Oreo, right? Um, and would, and would. But... But the one exception to this is my niece, Georgia, who somebody just made her a pair of underpants. No, not my, not, sorry, her doll. Well, okay, never mind. <laughs> For, uh, just uh, delete the last 30 seconds of that. Uh, but I'll explain to you the underpants in a second. The point is, I, I can handle Georgia in limited doses, right? And it was Christmas. And she and I were playing with American Girl dolls, which honestly has got to be the least edifying pastime. I, can, I, having, I, I can't actually imagine a more unfulfilling pastime than having fake tea with fake people at a fake cafe. Like, and besides that, the service was terrible. So after not too long, I got up and to leave to go to the bathroom, and she says, Gussie, and by the way, there's only one person in the world. No, there are four people, her three sisters and a best friend, but who are allowed to call me Gussie. She says, Gussie, where are you going? And I said, I'm I, uh, gonna, I head to the bathroom. She goes, are you going to poop? Because <laughs> apparently that's a thing for her now. And, and I said, I can't. 
I, am I? I and, she said, and she said to me, well, it's going to be stinky. And I, I thanked her for the warning um, and returned, you know, a few minutes later. And to find her really deep in thought, she was looking out the window and, and seemed actually a little sad. And I said, Georgia, are you okay? And she said, Gussie, did Jesus poop? Yeah, and I said, well, Georgia, yes, I think she did. And she took both American Girl dolls, and she held them over and she said, yes! <laughs> Jesus pooped. And, and she ran around the house spreading the good news. Uh, and, and she was, by epiphany, she was still spreading the good news at, at church. She told the priest uh, at, in the communion line that Jesus pooped. He told the people as they were coming out of church, Jesus pooped, Jesus pooped, Jesus pooped. Um, which, and, and frankly, I mean, and she's right. I mean, it, I mean this is what the incarnation, well, it's not, it's not what the incarnation is all about, but it's a big chunk that, that Christ infuses creation with divinity so that everything we do, everything we do, we can do for the glory of God. And why would this be any, I mean, this, by the way, is why bad words are bad, is because we take something good, something fundamentally good, created by God for us, uh, that, and, and give it a bad designation. Okay, I'm, I'm way off topic. Um, right, so our identity then is in our goodness, not in our sinfulness. We may fail in our endeavors, but we are not failures at heart. Okay, not while we remain united to Jesus and to his church. Um, which is why we can rejoice even when the hour looks darkest. My best friend in grad school was a self-professed, bitter ex-Catholic. And he used to say, you know, the problem with you Catholics is that when you're happy, you're happy. But when you're miserable, then you're really happy, right? Which is kind of true. I mean, there is something really neat about the way that Christianity can transform suffering into joy. And which is why we look to saints like Edward and Philippine for inspiration. And why it's such a disappointment to hear people recite platitudes like, you know, you're perfect just the way you are. You know, you're not. Or, or, or you can do anything just so long as you put your mind to it. Don't give up on your dreams. It's just not true. No one's perfect, but, 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 but no one's omnipotent but God. Um, well, in, in my work, I, I attend a lot of high school graduations. And uh, about every one of them had a graduation, a, a valedictorian speech that sounded something like this. <clears throat> Parents, faculty, and esteemed students of the Blah Blah School, uh, it's a great honor to be here, which of course they don't mean. Um, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we, we, uh, we will always be friends. <laughs> We've had our ups and downs, blah, blah, blah. Maybe a funny story, blah, blah, blah. Something about God if it's a Catholic school, blah, blah, blah. I never thought we'd make it. Uh, but with a blah, blah education, you'll prepare, be prepared to go out and change the world. So, so follow your dreams and be true to yourself and, and think outside the box and remember you're perfect just the way you are, blah, 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 blah. Thank you. Well, 
I've heard enough of these graduation speeches, and not all of them sounded exactly like that, but enough did that I finally sat down and wrote my own graduation speech. Yes, which I've never been asked to give. <laughs> but I'm gonna give it now in conclusion of our day of, of having sat through six hours of Father Augustine talking. Um, so I, I'm gonna give my graduation speech to you and I will conclude with my own litany of failure. Um, some of the more obscure and ridiculously named saints. <clears throat> so, let's see. Parents, faculty, and esteemed students of the Blah Blah School, you're all gonna fail. Over the next few years, you will all inevitably have your hearts broken. You will experience loneliness. You will miss a major opportunity. You're gonna lose a game, lose a job, lose a bunch of money. You will be abandoned and ridiculed and humiliated and scorned. You, my friends, are destined for failure and that is very, very sad. But it's also okay because your God had his heart broken and he was ridiculed by his friends. Your God was humiliated and scorned and abandoned. And that means that your dignity is not bound up with your success. You are a child of God. You have been divinized. And in the end, when you lie on your deathbed, as we all inevitably do, without trophies or diplomas or accolades, or even frankly, your bodily health, to comfort you. All that will matter is your existence as a child of God. And that'll be enough. In fact, it will be more than enough. It'll be absolutely everything. Saint Olav the Fat, pray for us. Saints Drogo and Mucus, pray for us. Saints Egbert and Wigbert, pray for us. Saints Pistus and Fartus. Saint Willibald. Saint Dodo. Saint Polio. Saint Hilarius. Saint Mungo. And Saint Barfian. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you for your patience. Pray for me and pray for vocations to St. Louis Abbey. We'll all, don't, don't clap. Jesus, we're in church. So we only clap for Jesus. But I appreciate the sentiment. <laughs> she, was quiet, she was quietly. Anyway, thank you very much. Good night or goodbye or whatever. That's a heck of a, that's not a good way. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, God. Amen. <laughs>